um, and knowing that it's going to contribute to overall ecosystem health and that that ecosystem health is contributing to human health, those two things don't, they're not separate, they go hand in hand. That's what keeps me going, that I, I know that I'm making an impact, not just in this you know, ecosystem and habitat, but I know that it's going to have improvements down the road for future generations beyond myself. This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at tidalinfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pelicanus. Pelicanus is a nonprofit organization focused on sharing the movement that is and has been happening in the conservation field. Now, this is Conservation Conversations, our long form documentary style show that highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field and to show that people have and still are making monumental differences in our world with intentional change. Head over to pelicanus.org to find all of our episodes and more. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Mara Palacios Mejia of the organization CalEDNA. Now, CalEDNA is a program that was founded by the UC Conservation Genomics Consortium that involved faculty from six UC campuses. This group aims to address problems in biodiversity by having community scientists work with researchers to collect soils and sediment samples from across California to become frozen archives of what the community was like at that place at that time of collection and sequence and analyze environmental DNA in these samples. This information will allow CalEDNA to assess the biodiversity of different habitats throughout California. By openly sharing these methods and results and creating strong networks, they can understand the potential of eDNA for conservation. This conversation is a perfect blend of big picture conservation and technical in the weeds talk, so to say. So sit back and enjoy Mara's story. I would, I'd really want to know more about CaliDNA, eDNA in, in general, um, and how it affects you know, biodiversity, uh, conservation projects, all that. How did you get into this field? Uh, what keeps you in this field? So I guess uh, in terms of my background, um, I'm you know originally from El Salvador. Um, my family moved here from um, El Salvador when I was three, um, and it was during a time when a war was going on in my country. Um, and yeah, pretty much just with my immediate family, all of my you know larger family members or other fa extended family is back in El Salvador. Um, I had a my first field trip. Um, was in fifth grade to, we went whale watching actually, and we didn't see absolutely any marine life. We were on this really large ship um, and we went out and we saw maybe like a sea star from afar and that was it. Um, but just that feeling of being out there in the ocean um, was really awesome. I really loved it and just connecting with nature, that, that's kind of what I took home from that. And that kind of set me on a path of, I really want to be outdoors. I want to do something outdoors. Um, and so then I started to think about of a, a career in marine biology and I did my undergrad at Long Beach. Um, and 
I started doing research in my last year. Um, and I worked with three different uh, researchers, um, each working on different things. So one was working on um, birds. Another one was working on um, invasive species of gobies. Um, we were doing some population genetics work. And then another one was looking at um, phylogeographic breaks of um, ghost shrimp. And so I was doing research with different people um, and I, I loved research. <laughs> I really liked it. Um, and so I kept going. So I got my master's in uh, marine ecology and I worked with ostracods and I also worked with like a predator prey model of pisaster and mussels. So that took me to British Columbia. It was the first time I've ever been um, abroad, which was super cool. Um, and then that led me into my PhD program at Texas A&M in Wildlife and Fishery Sciences. So my training was kind of like molecular ecology. And so that requires for you to go to the field. Um, when I did my work uh, for my PhD, it focused more on speciation, which is um, a little bit detached from the application part, right? Of the conservation um, in a sense. And yeah, I finished that up. I was teaching at Cal State LA, um, and then this opportunity popped up at, uh, in Dr. Robert Wayne's lab. He's a conservation genomicist. And uh, he focuses more on carnivores, but he has this other kind of project with environmental DNA. And so environmental DNA, although it sounds really complicated and cool, um, it's actually just DNA that gets shed by organisms into the environment. So as they interact with it, you know, they'll shed feces, they'll, you know, they'll shed cells, um, pollen. So all of this just gets trapped in the environment and we can collect it. Um, you can collect it either with soil, sediment, water, and even air samples, which is really cool. We can take those samples back into the laboratory and then we can amplify for different markers uh, for general groups. So by general groups, I mean like fungi or plants or animals. Um, and we can really pretty much reconstruct an entire community from, you know, 25, 0.25 grams of soil or one liter of water, which is pretty cool. Um, so it's the kind of sci-fi stuff that you dream of. And so when I started in this lab, I had some ideas that I wanted to apply this method for conservation practices. And so I teamed up with the Nature Conservancy on the majority of my projects. Um, and so I have three ongoing projects at this moment. Um, one of them is uh, in the Mojave Desert. So we are trying to test this method to see if we're able to actually uh, detect what's observed in the Mojave Desert Springs. In particular, this area has a lot of issues with uh, groundwater extraction, um, but also there's a lot of uh, competition with resource use by humans. Um, so there's a lot of competition there with how do we protect them, but also take advantage of the natural environment that's there. For example, the amount of sunlight that it receives would be great for solar energy. Um, but there's also issues on how that affects wildlife, for example, birds. Um, and so we've, uh, we're starting to wrap up that project. Um, we've had great success with environmental DNA, particularly with water samples. Um, and we're going to be writing up a report really soon. Um, then I have another project um, that just recently started. It's on the Jane German Preserve. Um, and that is um, north of Santa Barbara, just a little bit out ways away. And we're working on a, on a creek called Halama Creek, which is historically had um, steelhead uh, trout runs there. Unfortunately, it's been modified um, extensively with different ba barriers kind of set up. And so that eliminates the trout from being able to move 
and do their normal migrations. So we're using this technique to kind of see whether we can detect where in the stream they're still there or if they exist there at all. Um, with the thoughts of having, um, once we detect certain habitats, we'll be able to like develop a strategy for restoration efforts. Um, and so we just got that pro project started. And then I have another project, which is um, based in the city of LA. Uh, it's on brownfield sites. So brownfield sites are like ecologically destroyed sites because of some hazardous sub substance that's on site. Um, and this could be from, you know, industry or past use. Um, and so we have a site right now, uh, it's called the Bowtie Parcel, which is right by the LA River. And um, we're trying to associate microbial communities to the hazardous substances with the idea that we could identify um, certain microbes and create a cocktail for bioremediation, natural remediation by bacteria that's naturally found there. Um, so those are my three projects. That was a great um, you know, overall introduction to you and, and all your projects. And I think we should just go through and just unpack things from there. Yeah. Um, so if you don't mind, I, I kind of want to take a step back and. And I guess we could kind of transition into Cali eDNA um, and the community science aspect of it, citizen science, whatever you guys, we, we use community science, but you know. Yeah, community it, science. Um, so I, I guess along those same lines, can you, I guess just, uh, yeah, pitch Cali DNA. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so Cali DNA is a program that's been going on for about the past five years um, with the idea that we can bring science and anyone can do science, right? So that's the idea behind community sciences. Whether you're five years old or however old you are, you're able to participate and contribute to science in different forms. And that could be either by documenting biodiversity through iNaturalist, taking a picture of a snake, right? You're contributing to science because that puts information into a big database that's used worldwide to collecting a sample of water, for example, um, and doing some water chemistry and figuring out what the pH is in this location to more complex um, ways of getting involved, either considering your own projects, right? What are some questions that this community may want to answer? Maybe they're interested in water quality because they've seen a lot of people getting sick, like we had happen in Flint, right? Where, you know, there were people who were making observations of people being unhealthy and no one was listening to them until you know the science got involved and it was validating that. So, and even data analysis, right? So believe it or not, there's tools that can make it user-friendly so that anybody can be able to carry out data analysis. And I think CaliDNA is kind of like a summary of all of that. Um, we want to get um, community science involved in the entire process of what we're trying to find. And, um, that's kind of been the mission and the goal. Um, we've been focused in California, but we're slowly starting to expand, um, you know, nationally and even internationally. Um, with, but with the hopes that, you know, we bring the science method, the science literacy to a broader community with implications that contribute to the overall um, ecosystem health. But you, you mentioned that the CaliDNA uh, was uh, open sourced data. What What's the idea behind that? And why is that, if, it, if obviously if it wasn't important, then you guys wouldn't do it. So why is it important to make sure that all that data is open sourced? I think there's, there's 
I guess multiple reasons why open source is, is a good way to go. I think one, um, it lets the community see, for example, if they participated in a BioBlitz event, they can go see that their sample is actually there, that they matter, that what they did is they contributed to science and it's real and it exists and they can go check it out. That's pretty awesome that they can go back to their sample, they collect it and see the results. I think that's, that's important to feel that you actually contributed to science. It helps reinforce that you're not alone, that what you're doing matters. Um, so I think that's really critical. And I think other than that, I think it's also important that we be as transparent as possible. I think um, sometimes scientists tend to be very, uh, I don't know, like mystical creatures or something, you know, like they do all of these things and we don't, there's no real connection to the general public, which I think it's actually sad. Um, we've done a poor, you know, efforts in communicating, right? What, all the things that we know and that we learn. Um, and it's also important that there's upcoming generations, right? So connecting back to the community is critical. You can take that information and use it, right? Maybe you're curious about, I don't know, all of the nematodes in California. You can go look that up, right? <laughs> Just out of curiosity, you can go and explore the website. You can create your own questions. You can answer some questions, you know, it make it, and, you know, answering questions usually leads to asking more questions. And I think that that's the idea is that we all have different perspectives, different interests, and that that data can help, you know, contribute an answer to some of those things that you may have just a natural curiosity about. Um, but at the same time, it's rigorous enough that other scientists can come in there and take that information and combine it with a bigger data set, you know, and also answer their questions. So I think that that's the beauty about open source and um, what it adds, the value that it adds generally. From what you already said, you can take a small soil sample or a liter of water and, you know, work some magic and it tells you everything you have in that, that habitat. To me, like even as a practitioner and doing this for a decade, that blows my mind. Right. So if someone has no idea about anything conservation, they're going to be like, wait, you can just, it's like, like you said, it's like sci-fi. So yeah. if you, I guess if you can explain more than you already did, like how does that actually work? Yeah. Once we actually collect the samples and bring them back to the laboratory, um, there's different types of kits that we can use to carry out the DNA extraction. So there's like soil specific DNA extraction kits. And all that means is it's a bunch of reagents that you'll use um, to remove inhibitors uh, and to purify your DNA that's within your sample. And so there's some for soil, there's some for water, which is called like tissue and uh, tissue kit. Um, and then you have some specific ones for air. We haven't tried that ones yet, but we do work a lot with uh, water, soil, and sediment samples. Um, and so once we uh, are able to purify the DNA, then we can go in and we have um, primer sets for particular groups. So for example, for plants, we can use um, like a plant interspace uh, marker. And that, that marker is excellent because as you know, like across all organisms, we share different parts of the genome with each other, right? And so there's some that are specific for plants that we could use. There's some specific for animals that we can use. And so there's certain genes and they're usually mitochondrial genes because those are um, usually in large quantities in cells. Um, and so they're easier to kind of obtain. And so then we amplify 
that gene region using PCR, which will just magnify that signal by a thousand million, you know, a, a big amount. And then we can obtain that DNA and then we can add these little markers to it so that we're able to identify each sequence and where it came from and what sample. Um, and so then we will send that information off to a sequencing facility and then we will get millions of reads for each sample. And we can bioinformatically then separate um, like which belongs to which marker, which sample and which particular organism. So now we just have all these sequences, right? But we don't know what they are. So how we get that information is we have to reference a database. So for, I don't know, the past maybe 50 years, um, there's databases um, here in the United States um, that's called NCBI. And then there's one in Europe that's called EMBL. And so that's where people deposit their sequences, right? So this is a collection of sequences for different markers. And so whatever your marker is, you need to create um, a database and then you can reference your sequences and compare them to that database. So for example, you get sequence X and so you reference it on the database and sequence X comes out to, you know, a butterfly, butterfly, white sulfur butterfly. And then you got sequence um, D, sequence D gets blasted and you get coyote. Um, so that's how you're able to identify what that sequence come from. It's not perfect, so meaning you will have some se sequences that you won't be able to identify, and that can be for many reasons. That can be um, either because um, that sequence doesn't exist in the database, and that could be that that organism or that particular species just isn't in there. Um, when we carried out the Mojave Desert Springs project, we actually did a general comparison when we found that for plants, there's only about 40% of what we would expect there in the databases. That means that there's these big gaps. And the more remote or the less, um, if that particular ecosystem hasn't been explored or studied very well in general, you won't have sequences available there. So there are some limitations to this method. But it, it seems as if as you, as the technology gets better and as more and more organizations use this, that that database will become larger. So it's, it's almost like it's, uh, it, the more you do it, the better it gets. Yeah, so um, with these gaps in the databases, uh, we have to actually go out and sample specific tissues of those plants and actually sequence them for that marker so that we can enrich our databases. So there has to kind of be, a, you know, and there's, there's scientists doing that all the time, right? So I think, it's just about working together. And like you mentioned, there's, as this research grows, the field grows and the better that we get at identification, the better that we get at actually getting the true community. Um, and yeah, so yes, it's kind of a circular motion. Yeah, again, it, like I said, it just seems like magic. <laughs> um, how, how long, I, I know you're taking, like you said, 0.25 grams of soil from the topsoil. Um, how, how long does the eDNA last? So you're giving a, a snapshot to your habitat, but is that like right now, or that's been there for the last month, six months, 10 years? So it will depend. So for water samples, they tend to um, give you the community that has most, most recently been interacting in that ecosystem. Um, and that usually can be between days to weeks, depending on 
how much the water is moving, uh, depending on the temperature of your water, um, because you have to consider that, you know, this DNA is now free floating. So there's different variables that will degrade your DNA as it sits in the environment. And some of those are usually um, temperature. So increases in temperature usually means increases in bacteria and bacteria love to eat DNA. <laughs> and so it will degrade your sample. Um, and in terms of the soil or sediment, that's also very dependent on your environment. So for example, DNA has been extracted from um, you know, soil in permafrost. And so that can reconstruct communities like thousands of years ago, which is crazy, right? But that's because that DNA has been preserved, not exposed to the environment. And so it's kind of been sitting there just like a, in a freezer. <laughs> it's just been sitting in the freezer. And so it's fresh, it's still good to go, you can use it. Um, with more recent samples, it's also gonna depend, like are you sampling in the tropics versus are you sampling in temperate? So all of those environmental factors play a role on, I guess, the age of your community that you're reconstructing, if that helps. Yeah, that no. clarifies. It seems as if this is a relatively new technology, relatively, you know, it could be 20 years old, but it's actually yeah. being implemented now. Right. Um, is, is, is that true? Like, I guess, do you know the, the history of eDNA? I, I know, you know, you may, you yeah, might. it's, it's been around, um, for a little over like 15 years. It started off, um, really with microbiologists, um, using this technique for bacteria and soil. And then they kind of broadened it to, you know, other types of groups outside of bacteria. But it was originally developed by microbiologists. And yeah, you can say that the field is relatively new um, in the sense that we're still trying to answer a lot of these very basic questions that you're asking in terms of, you know, how long does it persist? Um, how does it differ across ecosystems? Um, and even in the methodology, um, we don't have a, any true standards for how many samples should you collect, um, how much of it should you collect, um, how many replicates should you have out in the fields, um, how many replicates should you have when you do your PCR amplifications. All of this is still actually in the process, literally in the process. Um, and so a lot of these questions really haven't been answered. When you asked me about the question of the sediment in the soil and how long it sits there, um, and the comparison of that to water, there's really only been a handful of research papers exploring and comparing those two sample types. And, you know, that it seems like it could be daunting. That's a huge task, you know, but as you said, there's a lot of different people working on it and mm -hmm. it also makes it exciting. Yeah. Cutting edge research. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the three projects, the Mojave, the Danger Mond, and the Bowtie. So I, I guess you kind of already talked about the Mojave. What, I guess, what is the, the purpose behind the whole, the idea of studying uh, eDNA in the Mojave Desert Springs? Yeah. So the idea of it is to actually develop um, a conservation index for each of those springs, right? So which of those springs are of top priority because they have endangered species on it? Um, in the same sense is which of those are actually heavily degraded and what communities are associated with them. Um, so it kind of gives us a sense of where the springs stand, right, in terms of quantifying it in some way, shape, or form. I should also add that on this project, it's not only myself working with environmental DNA, but we also have um, a hydrologist who is actually um, taking measurements on the ages of the water 
and he actually looks at the entire watershed and how they're connected. We have a botanist um, who is looking at all the plant communities at each of these sites um, and how kind of, then we can do some comparisons of, you know, sizes of the springs, um, types of springs, because some of them do have modifications. So for example, there's some that have like aluminum guzzlers in them so that the water doesn't just seep away um, and that's for wildlife. And so how do all of these modifications change the vegetation around the site? Um, we also have someone who is an expert in remote sensing. And so they're trying to see if we can detect um, based on the signal from the plants, would we be able to detect new springs that we haven't been identified yet? Um, and so it's a collective project with, with, the, with the thoughts in mind that we can develop this index and then we can prioritize which springs um, we can conserve uh, because, you know, California wants to be uh, green by, you know, 50% green by 2030. That means a lot of the Mojave Desert will be modified to put, you know, solar plants out there. Um, geothermal plants um, and anything that's related to green technology, the, the desert will be changed. And so we want to kind of be ahead of the game to see how these modifications will affect, you know, pre the current existing um, springs. That's awesome. I, I love the uh, diverse groups that are looking at it because like you said, you like, didn't able to tell you everything, but like there are some, you know, uh, missing pieces there but if you can I, I when you said remote sensing that's exactly what I was thinking where like you do the, the like satellite data and you're like okay mm -hmm. cool that's what it tells us but you always have to ground truth it you always have to go okay but you know this is what it says but actually it only got this overstory when there's actually understory that kind of stuff exactly and yeah so that's why I, I love that you guys are doing it, especially for something so uh, sensitive fragile yeah. it's it's a very unique system it's um, a refugia Right. So in the past, um, these, these are places, you know, with sparse water, right? There's no water out there. So these places are literally like islands um, of biodiversity, which is pretty cool. And as like you said, it's something for something so important like these areas, but also for something as um, intentionally good, like uh, green energy. You know, obviously, like, we all want to, like, get off of coal. We all want to get off of oil. We want to, like, let's see how we can all figure this out, you know. And so the fact that the state is actually pushing that is awesome. And then there's people like you on your side going, cool, let's do it, but let's do it in the right way. Right. And then when the, the it comes to the danger mine, you said there was a steelhead. So is that, I guess, if you do the same thing, gives kind of the, the overall uh, goal idea of that project. Yeah, so the purpose of that project is um, first is to identify whether we have any presence of steelhead within the stream. This stream unfortunately has never been assessed for presence of or absence of them within the stream. eDNA is a very quick, cheap and easy method versus having, you know, thousands of, of people hours out there, you know, looking. It's an 11 mile creek um, with very difficult terrain in some areas with drop-offs of like 600 feet. <laughs> so it's not accessible all the way. And so this is a really quick, easy method to kind of get an assessment of where they are, if they are there, you know, what types of habitats would they reside in. And that kind of helps 
right? They also have some endangered species on site. We don't obviously want to remove habitat where, you know, they are there. Um, so it, it helps with the management and planning aspect of how to move forward um, with the restoration efforts of the removal of the barriers, the types of vegetation that should be planted. Um, and then as the process continues, we can continually monitor, right, using the same method um, in the different stages of pr progression towards complete restoration. And, and that, sorry, that project was kind of a newer project, right? Yeah, I literally went to the field last Friday <laughs> and um, yeah, started processing the samples over the weekend. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was going to ask if there's any steelhead, if you found anything good, but if you don't know yet. <laughs> no results, <laughs> unfortunately, no. Yeah, that an interesting thing to, to follow up on later. So, um, and then the, the one I'm really interested in is the, uh, the LA River, and because, you know, the conservation issues are obviously global, but uh, a lot of people that live in a big city like Los Angeles, they're like, all right, well, you know, the environment's out there. I'm in Los Angeles. So like, there isn't, there isn't the environment here. Like if I drop my trash on the ground, this isn't the environment, this is cement. But then when you see these, the LA river or these little like wetlands and, you know, Alice Verde's, you know, Santa Monica mountains, like it's so fragmented that you really have, do have to protect those areas. And how is uh, eDNA uh, playing that role in the, the, the bow tie parcel is that we said it was called? Yeah. So that's a brownfield site adjacent to the LA river. Um, and I guess in terms of the LA River project in general, um, I think for that one, the idea is, you know, to revitalize the river, to restore the river. There's a lot of uh, political debate as to what to do with the river. And I think one neutral component is science, right? What does the science tell us? Because that's not going to pick any sides and that's going to say, you know, you're right or you're wrong. It's just going to tell you this is what it is. And now you can take that information and do with it how you would like to proceed. Um, and so for that project, we have about 16 sites along the LA River. Um, it's a big collaboration. Um, we have LA Sanitation, the Nature Conservancy, uh, Water Council Shed. We have many groups that are working together um, that have been collecting data. You know, the big problem around the LA River is that there's um, groups uh, and there's different groups with different sections of the river and there's not a lot of communication across a lot of those groups for political reasons or whatever it may be. Um, but like I said, we can bring in the science and the science is important to all of the groups. Um, but not only that, we're also trying to get the community involved, right? So there's different communities along the river um, that they can contribute to the monitoring of it by taking, you know, sediment samples, by taking water samples. Um, and also not just that, but there's different cultures along the river that we're, you know, trying to capture the essence of the LA River. And it goes beyond just the biodiversity, right? So there's different communities with different interests, different uses of the river as well, right? So, you know, some people may be more interested in fishing, others may be more um, interested in just getting more greenery out there. Others may, you know, so there's different interests, different stakeholders, and so how do we get everybody's voice to be heard? Um, and how do we work together to get to the objective of making the LA River, you know, the ecosystem, the best that it could be. And I think that that's where we're kind of trying to bridge the gap of bringing all these groups together, bringing community members together and trying to capture the essence of what the LA River is and how we can move forward towards the future to making it more ecologically friendly for all. So you said it, it's focused in California. 
right now, but it's slowly expanding. Is that kind of the long-term goal is to just kind of create a, a program like this, but larger scale? Yeah, the idea was that we, you know, California is kind of the model for a lot of things. And um, I think our research team was very uh, like visionary in that. And so they wanted to set kind of the standard of, you know, we can, we can show, we can create this and show that it's a model that anybody can follow right? It's very easy integrating people in the community by sending them kits, by doing online trainings, by doing, you know, real like trainings in the field. Um, that really is just like science is inaccessible because of lack of knowledge, right? And I think that that bridging that gap with education and tools is very easy and very, it can be incorporated anywhere. Is as we kind of already talked about how this this field can be really disheartening and discouraging <laughs> at times because of you know like we already said like you're almost always getting the only news you hear about the environment is usually bad news, but it's hard to remember why you're doing what you're doing at, on certain days you know and like but what is it that keeps you keeps you going um, what gives you hope what what is it that makes you, you know what, I'm going to keep doing this and I feel like I'm doing a good, a good thing. Oh man, that's deep. Okay. <laughs> um, that, that's a really deep question. I don't know. You know, um, I think you always have to be hopeful that things can be improved. And if you have that kind of vision that things can be improved, that they can only get better, then you have that hope. <laughs> um, I think, you know, particularly going out to the LA River, um, there are so many birds, um, so many little worms, so many, so much diversity. There's so much vegetation. The thing is, you know, we have a perspective that it looks lush and it's green. Um, but what we don't understand is the, the inner workings of all of those ecosystems. And I think that for me, I wanna know <laughs> the inner workings, right? So we can have a lot of vegetation, but if all of that vegetation is invasive species, then we're not, that's not gonna really contribute to the overall health. Um, and I think what keeps me going is that knowing that I can help solve a problem or contribute to part of the solution, right? Because I won't always have all of the answers. Um, and knowing that it's going to contribute to overall ecosystem health and that that ecosystem health is contributing to human health. Those two things don't, they're not separate. They go hand in hand. That's what keeps me going. That I, I know that I'm making an impact, not just in this you know, ecosystem and habitat, but I know that it's going to have improvements down the road for future generations beyond myself. And that's rewarding. That's what keeps me going. And that's what you know, gives me the motivation to keep trying, even though you know, sometimes there is gonna, you're gonna face failures or you're gonna face obstacles. Um, but that's really it. Like, I know that I'm contributing for the long-term and it's just not for me, it's something bigger than myself. I want to say thank you again to Mara for talking with us and sharing her experiences in the field and her amazing work in conserving natural resources using eDNA. Please check out their website at ucedna.com and follow them on social media at cal.e.dna. 
producers on this episode are Austin Parker, and the music was provided by Picture Book Studios. Please like, comment, and subscribe before you go if you haven't already. Thank you again for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time.